Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast. I am your host, Cody McBroom, the CEO of Tailored Coaching Method, a world-renowned online coaching company. This podcast is built to help you create a life by design. That's what the Tailored Life is. It's choosing to blaze your own path, make your own decisions, and create a life you desire. So in this podcast, you're going to learn ways to optimize your body, optimize your mind, optimize your relationships and optimize your business and career. This is the podcast for personal development junkies and people who can't stop growing because they strive for more. We are also going to bring on experts in every single field to teach you their own expertise. So you're not only learning from me four days a week, but I'm bringing other professionals in to teach you their principles too. So if you love personal development and you constantly want to strive for more in life, this is the podcast for you. Make sure you hit subscribe, send this to a friend that needs it, and keep listening to improve your life all around. And without any further ado, let's get into the Tailored Life Podcast. All right, so today's research roundup gets into, gets into uh, two topics that, one, which is, is pretty relevant to the way we coach, just because we use RIR and RPE so much. Um, and then one is very relevant to basically anybody that is a human being living in the world <laughs> listening to this podcast because we all have to wear masks. So we're going to dive into that as well, which I'm excited about. So let's, uh, let's I mean, let's just jump right into it and, and go into that first study and then we'll kind of start the conversation. Yeah, so the first, both these studies are like brand new. I've, I've been picking older studies, but these are like published in the past two months. Um, nice. So just because of our lag and stuff, there's a little bit of lag. But anyway, so this study was basically comparing um, no mask versus a surgical mask versus a cloth mask. So most people wear cloth masks just because they're easier. They're not, you know, health related. Um, and what they did was, it was very simple. It was just an incremental exercise test to failure. So they got on a bike and they pedaled and then every two minutes, like it would get harder. So your wattage goes up. Um, and then it was just to exhaustion or like when you, when the participant would tap out. Um, so they did this in each kind of condition. So the, the no mask, the um, surgical mask and the cloth mask and this is randomized and, and the design was really good. Um, and they had at least, I think it was two to three days between um, tests. So they weren't like fatigued. Uh, and the the main outcome, kind of like the, the the one that most people care about, is that the time to exhaustion was not different if you wore a mask or even like if you wore a surgical or a cloth mask. So they're basically all the same. These participants could go about the same distance, which would, looks, looks like like 10 minutes, 10 to 11 minutes before they tapped out. Um, so that was the kind of the main finding. The really interesting finding on the physiological level was on oxygen saturation. So you've probably heard with COVID that there's an oxygen saturation issue where they put, you know, you go to the hospital, they put a thing on your finger and it measures um, arterial oxygen saturation. So they had one of those on during the test um, and it did not change anything. So that's good. There was no, no issues with oxygenation. They also used a, um, a non-infrared spectroscopy device uh, uh, on the thigh. So as they're pedaling, they're measuring um, blood oxygen in the muscle of your vastus lateralis, basically. Um, and it's much lower than like your finger. 
um, if you just look at the, the percentages. Um, but again, they didn't find anything different there. So that that those two things tell us that, okay, so you're wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, you can get the same amount of oxygen in to your body and to your muscles. Um, and it doesn't affect fatigue, presumably from this. Um, so those are the the main findings. It was kind of a, a shorter, sweet study, like like it's just very direct, um, which is nice to have. It's actually surprising. I, I would have guessed that it would hinder um, results in some way or, or uh, the ability to train hard in some way. Do you think there's any mental component to that? Because my thought is too, is like some people actually get anxiety from being able to do that. And, and I've heard people use the excuse of like MMA fighters using uh, – the elevation masks and like one guy had like the smartest like reasoning that I've ever heard was like it's extremely uncomfortable and hard to breathe which prepares them mentally for what's going to happen in the ring I was like oh that's a good point you know but do you think there's a mental aspect to this too that could change the, the results um so they did measure RPE and there that's like that's your pseudo mental aspect I guess um but they didn't find any differences between the masks which I was kind of surprised and, and I agree with you that mentally um you're just kind of sometimes when you wear a mask it's harder to to like go hard um so that was kind of surprising now there's there's a couple other studies that this kind of piggybacked off of um but basically all of them have found that no no matter what kind of mask you wear your performance doesn't really decline um now the the kind of limitation to this specific study i think is it was done in like September. So most people had been wearing masks for a while by then. And these people had been training, like they were, they were trained um, at least in endurance. So they probably had been exercising a mask, but you know, it's still good to see. So there could have been a slight adaptation process there. Like I, I'm sure it might've been, maybe not, but it might've been different if I threw on a mask and started training because I haven't trained with a mask on ever. You know, I've never even yeah. worn an elevation mask, so it would be completely new ball game for me. Yeah, yeah, and it it took me a while to adapt to. Um, I think one of the things, like these are these are shorter um, tests, right? So they're like ten minutes, twelve minutes, somewhere in there. Um, but over the course of a workout, like if you if you sweat heavy, and I'm I'm pretty cold now, so I don't really sweat much, but your mask uh, can get kind of bogged down, so it can even like make it more mentally challenging to breathe through like a, a, a kind of wet mask. Um, but I assume that these people were also sweating if they're, you know, maxing out um, on a bike. So I, I'd be curious to see how that affects things too, like a longer workout versus just like a, a five, 10 minute thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there, you might not have looked in of the research, but uh, the effectiveness of the mask from like prevention of COVID and things like that. There's, there's, I mean, there's so much talk about it being either way and I have no idea. I haven't looked into it, but have you looked into that at all? Like, is it um, so I have, and well, I have a little bit because stuff comes out so fast on that. Like there was probably like five studies published very rapidly on that topic. And the last time I checked, it was kind of like either way, um, depending on what, kind of research design you like and how you like your data analyzed and, and you know the, all the the fine things about research but um yeah so i i can't say either way for sure um but it is kind of required or in that so 
don't yeah. really have a choice. <laughs> I mean, it, it's definitely not going to hurt. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, if we don't know for sure, then why not, you know, use it? But I, yeah. and I also think it's funny too, that like, uh, and this is a common topic for some, like some of the gym owners I know are just going haywire on, on Instagram stuff. And, and I don't blame them because their gyms are getting shut down. And like, there's quite a bit of research showing that gyms are the least common place to transmit COVID. And we also know, and I'd actually love to get like the science behind this for the people listening, like building your aerobic base, building, like doing resistance training, even cardiovascular system improves your immune system to fight off things like that, you know? So, um, realistically we should be training and we shouldn't take people out of the gym because that's going to help them, you know, fight this off. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, so exercise immunology is probably one of my, my weaker areas, but most data, there's at least a correlation of like exercise helps you not get sick as much. Um, just broadly speaking, uh, now there's a couple like components to that. It's, Hey, you know, when you exercise, people who exercise probably are just healthier in general. Um, so that helps, uh, you know, if you're in a gym, it is, it's not, I wouldn't call it dirty, but you're exposed to a lot of things, right? It's kind of like having kids, like you just get whatever they get. Um, so whatever environment you're in, it's the same people generally, but you're exposed to more, um, stimulus for your system. So I think maybe I'll, I'll have to look into the research a little bit more on that aspect because that's pretty, pretty big. I think it's a good one. And it gets like, I think for me, cause you're so right, man. Like uh, my daughter got a, uh, sick, not COVID, but um, like just last week and me and Shannon both looked at each other and we're like, Oh shit, how many days do we got before we get it? You know? <laughs> and so she got it, but I was like taking vitamins and drinking water and like sanitizing and wiping everything down. And she's like, Oh, now you clean. And I'm like, Oh yeah. <laughs> And I didn't get anything. I was like, I don't want, like, I, it was actually, it was funny because uh, I went through like three different things that really like screwed up my training for three weeks in a row. And then this, and I was like, I'm not skipping more training this week. I'm going to make sure that like mentally I'm not getting sick. And I didn't, but, um, but it's true. You, you go, you be around that more, you will adapt. And, and I, I think training in general, like since I started getting pretty healthy and fit, I've noticed a huge decrease in doctor visits and getting sick and the need for Dayquil and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think more, more than anything, like seeing studies like this is cool too, because a lot of people will use the excuse to not train because it's uncomfortable with the mass, because it's hard to breathe. And they give themselves that excuse, even if like they still go to the gym and they're not using it as an excuse to not go to the gym, but maybe they're using it as an excuse when they get to rep five, they're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Like, I'm going to stop early. And can, they kind of give their se- themselves more wiggle room because they have a mask on, quote unquote. And this kind of proves like, hey, no, your performance is fine. Don't slow down. Don't stop. You know, keep going. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and the more you do it, the, the more you, I think, get used to it too. I've been, so shoot, I had to start training with a mask back in March um, or April at least. But I, I have certain masks now that are like, not thinner necessarily, but better at wicking like sweat and stuff. And so I have like this array of masks that like, okay, this is my leg day mask and this is my running mask. And this is my like casual workout upper body mask. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's like uh, the TCM ones I got made for everybody. They're like thick cotton. So like whenever I wear that, like I get like the craziest mustache beard sweat ever. And I'm just in the grocery store. So yeah, you got to be careful with the, which ones you're wearing, but um yeah, no, I actually is, use I use that one for the like the upper body workouts generally. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a, that's a safe bet. I was going to say that's definitely not a leg day or a cardio <laughs> mask for sure. Um, I had to, the, the longest, like, so I got a tattoo and it was like, I was there eight hours for three days in a row and I had to wear a mask the whole time. And that was like annoying because you just, it's uncomfortable. You want to like breathe. I can't really chew gum with a mask on because when you chew gum, the mask slowly like slip, goes down. <laughs> so like, and I like to chew gum when I'm getting tattooed because it just kind of takes your mind off it. But um, that was the worst I've had with it is having to wear it all day during a tattoo. But other than, uh, other than giving people the reassurance of, of, Hey, like it's not going to affect your performance. We know that. Uh, do you have anything else that this like study kind of gave you insight on or that you wanted to share about it? Um, I don't think so. I do have a comment on the tattoo thing. We'll talk about that, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just, I was a little surprised with the RPE stuff. Um, and just by like phys- physiologically, it's not going to do anything. Um, so wear your mask and go, go work out. Have fun. Yeah. It's surprising, but reassuring. That's yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, cool. Uh-huh. Study two, uh, estimating repetitions in reserve for resistance exercise. Let's dive into this one. Yeah. So this is building on RPE with reps in reserve, which surprisingly has only been around in the science or in the literature for like four or five years. Um, so Mike Zordos and Eric Helms have kind of pioneered this, this field based on a training um, system created, I guess, by Mike Tuscher. And I don't know, Mike, I've heard really good things, but um, this is a good example of the fitness world influencing like the scientific world, Mm. because now you look at a lot of um, studies and they almost all use RPE to some extent like this. Um, So it's getting more and more popular. Can we, uh, can you define RPE and RIR just so people aren't listening? If who, if they don't know, then like, uh, they know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good, that's a good um, question. So it's a, it's a four or six to 10 scale. Um, and basically 10. So if you, if you were doing a set and you hit RPE 10, that was basically like the max you could do the max reps to max weight. Um, nine would be, I have like one rep left. Um, and then kind of between that nine and a half would be like, I can do more weight, but not necessarily more reps. And then you work backwards from there, um, going down, you know, eight RP of eight would be two reps left. RP of seven would be three. And then kind of, once you get below like six and five, it kind of bunches together. And so it's not as clear, like RP five, it's not five reps left in the tank. It's like four to six. Um, so that's the, the basis of it. Um, for people that don't know, so it's a really good system. And that and that stands for reps, uh, or sorry, uh, rate of perceived exertion for those listening. Mm-hmm. And then RIR stands for reps in reserve, which is essentially just the inverse. It's just the opposite, right? So like if you did an RPE of eight, that's kind of like saying an RIR of two. Yeah. Um, I think, in my opinion, I I went from like when when RPE really started getting popularized, I loved it because I was like, this is so useful because the number one question you get from people who are working with you online versus in person is how much weight should I use? Mm. And a lot of times it's like, I don't know because I'm not there with you. I can't tell you what you should be bench pressing based on your body weight because it's different for everybody, you know? So this allows them to go, hey, like this first week of the block, you're going to work up to a five rep max and you're going to leave one in the tank. Right. And now we have kind of like a standard set and we can use an RIR after that to say like, 
this set is four sets of eight with an RIR2 or an RPE of eight or whatever it may be. And it kind of allows them to auto-regulate that as they go. Um, the other cool thing about this, like you said, with fitness influencing the sciences, I believe RPE started in the endurance world. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And then yeah, yeah. Mike Tuchere was the first one to be like, I think we should use this in powerlifting kind of thing. That's from, from my understanding. Yeah. And I actually, I was reading about the, um, the origination of the Borg scale. So that's like the first endurance scale, mm. which is six to 20. And I was like, why? I've always wondered, why is it six to 20? That makes no sense. Like zero to 10 or a hundred or just starting at zero seems like a good idea. Yeah. Um, and it was because they correlated it with endurance exercise and it was cycle exercise. Uh, and the base heart rate is like 60 and then the max heart rate is like 200. So it was 60 to 200, so six to 20. So that was the, the initial idea. Now, obviously age and sex and fitness play a role in that, but, and Borg pointed that, that out in his papers. Um, but it was just, I found that little study and I was like, wow, that's, that makes so much more sense. Um, there's also an issue with RPE where like, if you, give an RPE of like four and an RPE of two, there's not necessarily like a doubling between those two. It's not like, not linear, but it's basically exponential. Like there's exponential differences between um, numbers instead of just straight linear numbers. Um, so he figured out that it, that special number was like 1.6. So. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and, um, and when was this, do you know, if, was that in the eighties, nineties? So, like... so he started in the sixties and seventies. So wow. it's been around. Yeah. Yeah. But it it's translated a, it's... into the strength world in early two thousands, right? Yes. I think you said 2008, if I'm reading correctly. Yeah. Yet. The one, the, so I don't actually know, like, cause I don't know Mike, I don't know when he started using it, but the reference in the paper and kind of what I remember is about 2008, 2005, somewhere in there, but it could have been earlier. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Let's, let's get back to the study. Cause I think there's a, there's a quite a few things I can go on tangents with just even just talking about RPE versus RIR is a whole discussion itself, but I think I'll let you kind of go through the study and then I'll fire away some questions at the end. Yeah. So they had, um, 20, 20 guys come in about 86 kilos. Um, the goal of the study was they're trying to figure out if you blinded the participant to the load so like you don't know how much you're lifting does it affect your estimate your estimated reps in reserve um and like i would think like i don't know how much is on the bar i'm just going and i'm going to give you an rpe that it would affect things because i know about how many reps i can do at a certain weight now these people had never used the rpe rir system so that's kind of like a, okay well you got like fresh people here um, so basically what they did was they came in, they did three different sessions, kind of like the other study. Uh, they did one rep maxes for bench press and row. And then the next time they came in, they did four sets to failure of 60% of their one rep max that they just did. And then the next time they did four sets of fit to failure of 80% of their one RM. And they're, so they're doing bench press and row each time they come in. Um, now, initially, they had split the groups because they were like, we're going to have a blinded group or a masked group, and then we're going to have a group that knows exactly how much weight they're doing. And we expect, you know, if we, if we blind people, they won't be able to estimate as good. So it turns out that blinding people doesn't really matter. Uh, like, they were essentially the same across the board. 
between the, the masked condition and the non-masked condition. So what they did after that was they said, okay, these groups don't really matter. So we're going to smash them together. And I've kind of touched on this in previous podcasts where um, scientists will do this just because that means there's not really a difference there. Uh, so then they smashed the data together, got way more people, um, and you can get a little bit more out of the data. And so they looked at their data on the 60% 1RM and the 80% 1RM. And the main finding, I think, for bench press and row is that their first set, they like severely went over their estimated reps in reserve. So like they estimated they would do six or seven and they actually did like 12. And so that was for bench press and row. But when they went back to the next set, the second set, they were pretty much spot on. And the third set, they were pretty much spot on. So they could predict how many reps they were going to do. Um, and that's at both percentages, 60 and 80. And that, that kind of agrees or aligns with what I've said with like, you need, to, you need to fail to know how to use RPE properly to an extent, you know, or at least reach like, I don't want people to go fail and hurt themselves, but like on a row, what are you going to, you're just going to drop the bar. It's not, not the big yeah. deal. Bench press. I mean, you could get hurt, but most likely it's going to be embarrassing because it's a big weight on your chest and somebody's got to pull it off and it's just never fun. In a study, I think that's acceptable, but in a public gym, it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but that kind of goes aligned with that thought process of like, Hey, like we got to push you to failure, you know, in order to, to see what, or to allow you to gauge your intensity better, your effort better. Um, and there was also an interesting study. Uh, I read about it in mass. I, I want to say Eric Helms was the one that reviewed it, but it was basically talking about um, similar thing, bench press. They told people to put their 10 rep max on, I think the bar and everybody individually was like, all right, this is my 10 rep. This is my 10 rep. And they all put it on. And the average was like 16 reps. And I think there were some people that hit 26. Like there was a couple people that hit like 11 or 12, but I don't know if there was anybody below the 10. There might've been a couple, but the, the group average was like 16, I think. And it just goes to show that like without experimenting on that first set, it's really hard to dictate. And a lot of times people don't really, to me, that just shows like, you don't know how hard you can or should push. So when people say like, especially for like hard gainers that are like, oh, I'm eating a ton. I'm, I'm training really hard. I'm, I'm on a program. And it's like, all right, well, you're probably actually not creating enough stress on the muscle. Like you're probably just not going hard enough, which is, especially if you're by yourself, it is difficult to do, but this is a tool that allows you to figure out what that actually looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, you know, when I, when I used to have clients, I would have people occasionally test like once a month, Hey, go to a failure and let's see how, how more, much more you can do compared to what you have been doing. Um, just cause you, like you said, it's good to test. I, I think most people would test on the last set instead of the first set, just so they can do more volume across the sets. Um, so I see that a little more in practice, but yeah, like there's, there's definitely a period where you're doing RIR and you have to figure it out. Exactly. Um, with this, like I was kind of looking at the, like how we apply this, what, I mean, what's your preference for application as far as RPE versus RIR? Um, okay. So let me break this up into a couple different categories. So I use it pretty much all the time. 
I think for physique athletes or people who want to just get like grow muscle and get bigger that aren't like sport CrossFit or, you know, weightlifting, anything like that related, just general pop plus physique. Um, I would use this like all the time. Um, you can max out occasionally, but it doesn't really help you to max out. Like actually that's probably time lost recovering and a higher risk of injury than just going with kind of a set to failure every now and then at a, at a you know, lower number of reps than one. Um, so that's how I would apply it to those type of people. For power lifters, I still like to use percentages um, because it gives me the, the ability to say, okay, your one RM was 400, right? And, and this mesocycle, we, we know you've gotten stronger, but we don't really know. So we're going to push your one RM up to 415. And then all your percentages are going to increase a little bit, right? And then if we go back in and, and during the, the um, program, you're like failing a lot or your RPE is super high, maybe we'll adjust from there. But then we always have that base of, okay, this week I'm going to do 75%. One RM. Next week, I'm do eighty. Um, so it lends well to programming for for strength athletes. Um, CrossFit, I think you can do like a mix. Um, so that's generally how I I would use it in application. I like that. I think that um, I, for me, like with Gen Pop and aesthetically driven people, I'm more on the side of RIR versus RP, just because I think it's easier for them to understand what I mean by that. Because if it's a set of six and it's an rpe of eight people get confused you know mm. it's not 10 reps a set of 10 is really easy to gauge your rpe you know what i mean but i think uh i think that's helpful for people to understand i, I still personally like to to push people close if not to failure at least once usually not in a one rep but like even if it's like an eight rep max i'll say like work to your eight rep max dumbbell bench press you know we want to get to that effort to teach you um, and then using rir to dictate the weights you use but i like how you said in powerlifting you still use percentages, which I agree with. And I still do. Cause that kind of gives you a North star of what you should be lifting. Um, and then using RP almost after the fact as a, as a way to use it as a tool to determine how that training looked like, you know, in your head, like, all right, you're doing 375. This should be an RPE of nine for this single or whatever it may be. Um, and they report back, like they didn't even make it or like they're like i had a few in the tank right now you're like oh shit that changes what we think the max is you know yeah. um and i've never actually like i think i've i've intuitively used it as like a tool after the fact but i've never really thought of it as a tool after the fact i've always looked at it as something to dictate how you should train rather than um adjusting future training right does that make sense yeah yeah and there's um there's something called a, a global rpe so you would give an RPE like after the workout, like how hard was this workout on a one to 10 or I, don't, I can't remember if it's a one to five scale, some scale. Um, and I've used that in the past because sometimes like one exercise will just be super hard, but the rest of the workout is easy. Or maybe you just have like a, a really hard workout because you know, you didn't eat right or you didn't sleep right. Which when you look at a log, like someone's log, you're like, okay, sleep, nutrition, training, how do they interplay with each other? And then you look at their global scale score and it's like really low. And you're like, oh, it's because you were stressed out and all this other stuff. Like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I think that's the difference between <clears throat> total fatigue and like even just general of life. And then also 
effort in the gym, which is the RPE and the RIR, right? And I think, I yeah. think that's important, which actually, that makes me, there's a question I've wanted to ask you for a while, actually, um, and that's on central nervous system fatigue, which I think would contribute to this idea of global fatigue or global RIR, RPE. Um, but pretty recently, like, Menno came out with some stuff saying, like, it's not a thing. Central nervous system fatigue is, is not real. Like, you can't fatigue. And, but I still hear very intelligent individuals talk about, like, neurological fatigue and that is central nervous system fatigue and and i know personally the difference between like right now my quads are super sore still from monday because it's a new block and i haven't done barbell split squats and it was deficit split squats in a while like my quads are crushed but i feel i have energy like my joints don't hurt my i'm not lethargic i'm not unmotivated but there's also a period of time where i'm at the end of a block and i like don't want to train and I, I don't really have any muscle soreness, but I just feel drained and just zapped, right? To me, I've always looked at that as central nervous system fatigue because it's the easiest way to, one, determine you need to deload, and two, like, it kind of allows me to just better, like, articulate or explain what's going on to somebody, right? Um, is that accurate, or do you, or do you uh, agree with Menno? Um, okay, so the issue with central nervous system fatigue is you can't really quantify it on like you can quantify it on a scale but like if you if i said you know it's because of x like we don't know what x is so therefore if like you can't explain it on a scientific level it must not exist like i'm like ah okay so it it definitely exists we just don't know what it is or why it happens is that is that similar to like the idea that like it's not adrenal fatigue it's hpa axis dysfunction um kind, yeah kind of um i think to me it's I, like you know if, if you say adrenal fatigue i'm like okay i know what you're talking about like i understand that's not the medical term that we need to use but and i look at that the same way as like central nervous system fatigue if, if it explains to me what you're going through i can better adjust your plan or vice yeah. versa like if if i use this terminology you get it and now you're like oh okay, I do need to manage stress or recover or deload or whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, I, I still like using it, but it, when you said that, it kind of reminded me of the adrenal fatigue thing. Yeah. And, and so if you can use it as a tool, like I think you use it, use it well. You're like, if you can use it to describe your fatigue, that's, and I know now that it's not muscular and it's not like some random thing um, that helps me as a coach or, you know, help you as an athlete or whatnot. Um, so I remember I got destroyed during my dissertation defense with, or no, it was, it was my qualifying exam on like trying to define fatigue. And so we started at like the neurological level in the brain and I had to work all the way down to a muscle fiber. Right. And it's been, it's been a long time. So don't ask me to do that. But, um, I got to the end and all they were looking for was for me to do all that and then say, you know, we don't actually know what fatigue, like what causes fatigue. Cause we've done all of these steps. We've done all of these papers and experiments and we still don't have like a one thing um, because it's probably a lot of little things that add up across the, the body. I was going to say that that's kind of how I look. I look at central nervous system fatigue as like a cumulative level of fatigue, right? Like that's why when you said global fatigue, it like rung a bell because to me, that's like, we, we don't, people saying like, oh, deadlifts are more uh, going to fatigue your nervous system more. Like, I know they're more neurologically demanding, but I think that's an inaccurate statement in the sense that 
doing heavy deadlifts on Monday and heavy squats on Thursday and high volume on Wednesday and Friday because you have your hypertrophy days and you're getting six hours of sleep. Like all these things, like that's what's fatiguing, you know? Because yeah. I know people who, if you get nine hours of sleep and you only train three days a week, fuck, you could lift heavy deadlifts every week and you probably won't need to deload for quite a while, if ever, you know, unless your joints hurt. But um, so I think it is like that cumulative effect of just like sympathetic tones and just stress, stress, stress until you get to that point. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, you can look at, you know, hormones and it's like, okay, well, yeah, sure. After a while, if you're super lean, like that could be contributing to fatigue, but just like some random week, it's probably not going to be that. Um, so it, yeah, it, I'll, I'll look back into it again to see if like i missed something, but I don't think we have a good definition and that's why people kind of brush it off. I think that's, and that's the problem with a lot of uh, like some, like there's two ends of the spectrum. Like there's like, uh, like the people who like, there's obviously pseudoscience and then there's like science that is like, people get so entrenched in the exact terminology and the exact definitions and exact that they lose sight of just helping people, you know, or they like twist things too much or they get too specific that it like almost uh, uh, what's, what's that? Uh, it's not procrastination. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh my God. Yeah, when you're, you. yeah, when you're, when you're frozen, you can't do something. You can't make a move, but point being is like uh, paralysis by analysis. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, um, yeah. It gives you paralysis by analysis because you're so focused on that, that you're, you, you just stop taking action. You start to stop doing anything, you know? Um, and then there's obviously the opposite side where they take like one little tiny bit of science and then they try to like, make false claims into things that aren't reality or fully true. Um, I, I watched a really good mm -hmm. presentation uh, from Jackson Pios on pseudoscience. And he was talking about like, I mean, some things that are scientifically sound, but they're still pseudoscience because the claims are false, right? Like intermittent fasting was one of them. Like intermittent fasting has benefits. It works, but it's not a fat loss tool because every study used for fat loss purposes shows that if calories are equated, it doesn't make a difference. So, you know, and this is like, I wrote a post about this and I actually ended up taking it down. Cause I was like, I, I, I think I needed to reword this because it kind of confused some people because in, in intermittent fasting was one of the ones people were like, well, there's plenty of studies on that. And I'm like, I understand that, but it's the false claims that there's no evidence to back up that people are making. Right. And I think that's the problem with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's, oh man, that's the, I think that's the hardest thing to fight is just like you take a study and then you claim one thing that's not even related. And I'm like, what do you, how did you get there? And, <laughs> and like, as a, as a scientist, like I've been doing this for a while. So I understand some nuances, but I don't want to think people just like are dumb if they don't understand science. Like that's not fair. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. It's a struggle. I just, I don't like pseudoscience and I, I don't know. It, I don't know how we go about fixing it. Well, and I, I try to tell people too, like if something works for you, do it because placebo is real and if that's what you know because like one of the things i threw on there too was acupuncture because there's really not a lot of evidence to show that like acupuncture does what they say it does you know like balance your chi and all that kind of stuff but um but then like you have people that are like no no no, no this changed my life and it's like well if you believe something enough it will change your life and and in that scenario you should keep doing acupuncture because it's helping you and also i give a shit about is you being happy and getting better you know but acupuncture is kind of pseudoscience. Uh, seed cycling is another thing that's kind of pseudoscience. You know, like people swear by it, but there's really no evidence to show that cycling seeds in your diet is going to do it. It's probably just 
you're adding healthy fats into your diet and that's affecting the estrogen progesterone balance and that causes this positive effect um but that's another controversial one that people like change their life you know yeah i um so i had one that kind of i had flipped like the science had come out enough for me to change my mind on and that was um massages like for a long time there wasn't a great uh, body of literature on massages helping like muscle recovery which is what you know people go get them for mm-hmm. um but then there's a couple studies that came out and i was like oh man like you could see it on the on the molecular level it's changing these pathways and helping and this is how it's how, how it's doing that and then i was like okay so yeah they're probably beneficial yeah. but like most people would tell you oh i get a massage i feel great and and you know not necessarily supported but change my mind and this book is probably used an older study because it's, it's uh, I mean, it's been out for a while, but the recovery book by RP was really good, Dr. James Hoffman. And he kind of talks about how there isn't that much to back up massages. But when you go get a massage, there's no phone, there's quiet music, you feel good, there's physical touch. There's all these things that like put you into the parasympathetic mode, just like meditating for an hour, hour and a half, really right there. And he's like, that's going to lead to significant recovery benefits more so than the actual muscle tissue um that's happening and i mean you saying that makes me even more happy because i get massages once a month for that exact reason it just i just feel better like for multiple reasons but um i think it'd be interesting to do like a whole podcast or something on like pseudoscience and and kind of explain to people because i think there's a lot of people who you know they grab onto these things and i always tell people too like anytime you hear anything in the dieting world draw a pathway and see if it leads to a calorie deficit because if it does it's probably suicide like this isn't a fat loss tool it's just a tool that might make you fall into a calorie deficit better you know yeah um, yeah that would that'd actually be a good idea i'll i'll do some looking into that how i would set up a pseudoscience kind of thing we have something like how to interpret science in our mentorship but we don't have like a, a anti-pseudoscience thing be good uh, the, the lecture that I'm, uh, that, that may, kind of triggered the thought process to me was, um, it's in the sports nutrition association and it's like one of the first ones. And it's, it's literally an hour and a half of Jackson just going off on pseudoscience, but he goes outside of nutrition and training too. He starts talking about ghosts and like all, <laughs> all kinds of shit. It's actually funny, but, um, but it's good and it, and it makes sense. And it, and it kind of, it's, it's helpful for people to hear that kind of stuff, you know? And, and I think, like you said, like we can talk about how to interpret research and what research is good, but giving some anti-science stuff is, is like anti-pseudoscience stuff would be super helpful for a lot of people, especially gym pop. And I'm going to recreate that post I did and word it differently because I think there is value in people understanding how to, how to filter good and bad science, you know, and well, science and then pseudoscience basically. Um, and I, like, I, cause I had somebody comment on it who is really smart, somebody I respect. And his whole thing was like, I, he was like point heard. Like, I agree with what you're trying to say, but I think wording it this way, blah, blah, blah. And he started kind of going off and I was like, okay, you're reaching now, but I get what you mean. And then like, I think it confused a couple of just average people. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to take this down and repost it because the purpose was not for coaches. It was for gen pop who don't get it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, I think it would be cool to do a whole blog or a whole podcast on that topic. Yeah, so. for sure. Um, well, cool, man. That's, uh, I mean, that's, that's basically wrapped. Do you have anything to add into uh, at the end of this podcast about those, about those studies? 
No, no. I think I think they're they're pretty straightforward. I've you know design wise, these are like easy to to analyze and to kind of see how the benefits are you know how they compare. Um, the RPE, there is one study that did RPE with RIR versus percentage one RM. Um, and that was, I think it's Helms in 2019. Uh, and he actually found that the RPE RIR system worked and better than the percentage based system. Um, and I also think there's a study by the people who use percentage based um, training and it found the opposite thing. So, you know, TBD on that whole, like, how does it, which one's better? Um, but it's definitely a system that you can, you can use. Yeah. I think like, to me, the conclusion of it all is basically like, number one, don't use the mask as an excuse. And number two, like RPE or RIR or some way of regulating your training loads is, is advised, you know, going in the yeah. gym and winging it is not advised. And sometimes going to failure or using percentages helps you dictate what those RPE or RIR levels might be in the future. Yeah, that is, that's a perfect recap right there. Cool. <laughs> um, well, cool, man. We'll, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, guys, as you're listening to this, there's probably a link in the description of this podcast to go check out the blog version if you want to check that out. Um, otherwise, if you enjoy the podcast, as always, tag us both in your story, take a screenshot. Um, I'll put both of our handles in the description. We'd love to thank you and share it on ours as well. So we will catch you guys next time. Peace.